Hello, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvey. Today, I'm joined by Nick Carter, uh, who's a well-known Bitcoin guy. We're going to talk about Bitcoin and the state. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Wolf. Yeah, so let's let's dive right in. Um, there's, I mean, so, well, first of all, there's this phenomenon of, of Bitcoin and blockchain, right? There's these technologies that are allowing us to create money that is decentralized out of the control of any particular institution um, that has its own monetary policy. In the case of Bitcoin, uh, a sort of asymptotic inflation to a fixed money supply. Um, in a case of other other cryptocurrencies and other projects, there's other things going on. But this kind of opens up this question of, okay, if you can create money that is not tied to any particular institution, in particular, any kind of central bank, um, then what does that mean for sort of uh, state monetary policy, which right now is all sort of driven through these central banks? Um, and, and, you know, most states have their own currencies these days. What does it mean for that? All that kind of stuff. So I wanted to talk about that topic and see where is this actually going to change things and where is it uh, going to stay relatively the same? Where is it going to do something unexpected? So, yeah, Nick, if we can... Um... Yeah, I mean, I think Bitcoin is... It's a long time coming. Like, people have been trying to make um, electronic cash instruments for yeah 40 years at this point. You know, people really started trying in the 80s uh, when some improvements in cryptography came around. But it took a really long time. Actually, in 2009, when Bitcoin was finally operationalized, people like the cypherpunks, they're called, the people that are trying yeah. to create electronic cash, they were all super disillusioned and they kind of wrote off the idea. And why it was that? Well, because they tried for so long with such little success. So it's, it, it's not that Bitcoin was a bolt from the blue. It's actually a culmination of this like long project, um, which is a very intimately political project in nature to effectively denationalize money, yeah. Uh, to create a new frontier in cyberspace mm -hmm. um, and to untether currency or money from like physical instantiation um, and, you know, very deeply uh, political ideas. Um, you know, people often say that this is, you know, a neutral technology. I mean, really, the, the creators of it had a, a political objectives in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And. Over the last 11 years of Bitcoin being active, we've started to see its effect on the world, but only just barely. Um, I do think it's part of this, you know, broader trend of like the decline of the the Westphalian state um, and the empowerment of the individual uh, relative to the state. Interesting. Um, I, I would put it in category of strong defensive technologies along with encryption, of course, that allows you to conceal information against a powerful adversary. Um, you know, something like um, AK-47s, for instance, which are armaments, which are, you know, portable and convenient and durable and, you know, part of what allowed insurgency to be um, effective. But at, but at the same time, those AK-47s are manufactured by basically the USSR and its allies and and used kind of for their foreign policy goals. So it's like That's you true. simultaneously have this this kind of creation of new insurgencies uh, almost 
aligned with the will of a particular center, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I meant more like the post-Soviet proliferation of arms, right. which allowed insurgencies to flourish, arguably. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's kind of a defensive technology. It allows you to defend your savings, your purchasing power, against um, an adversary that would historically have had full discretion over it uh, because you would have had to save yeah. money in the banking system, in a bank, uh, you know, in a fractional reserve system, et cetera. Um, obviously, gold is the other analog. You know, mm-hmm. you can hold gold if you want to maintain your purchasing power. But, you know, realistically, like gold is actually pretty confiscatable. You know, yeah. um, you know, obviously, if you were a Jew in Nazi Germany, they stole yeah. your gold. And if you were an American in 1933, uh, Order 6102 uh, effectively nationalized everyone's gold at a pretty unfair price. So, mm-hmm. yeah, gold, you know, it's not that portable. So Bitcoin just takes this idea to the logical conclusion. What if you had information or what, what if you had money or a monetary commodity, which was synthetic and you could store it in the form of information? And uh, that's exactly what it is. And so it, it's a very potent uh, political tool. Yeah, it's, it's much more it's much more portable and it's much less censorable and less seizable, basically. Exactly. That's the idea. Yeah. So people talk just about sensor resistance, but really, it's a, it's a bundle of of nice yeah. properties. So so let's let's start with that then, because like I, I definitely have some ideas here that I'd love to hear responses to. So in particular, like the ability of the state to seize your gold or, or seize your Bitcoin in this case. Um, in the case of gold, it's kind of like if your gold is buried in the backyard, they can't they can't. Uh, get it, but if it's like any kind of known, they can they can come after you for your gold. That you have to sell your gold, basically, um, or or in you know or or more aggressive kind of confiscation. In the case of Bitcoin, it's it's perhaps easier to conceal. Um, in one sense, on the other hand, you've you open up all these kind of information leaks, where your gold or your Bitcoin is sort of on record you you have an address that is on record as having x amount uh or or some number of addresses and and that sort of potentially like depending on how well the state is able to build kind of surveillance technologies to keep a track of what's going on on blockchains that that potentially kind of reopens this possibility of you know direct taxation of your uh your holdings um, yeah. and, and so I'm curious to hear, like, I, I know there's technologies that try to address this, um, but like that, that seems a, a way that it, it's at least not like an easy, perfect, uh, you know, your money is now dark kind of thing. Yeah. And this is actually why a lot of those original cypherpunk digital cash projects had very strong privacy built in. Right. Inherently. So like um, David Chalm's DigiCash talk about a Chalmian bank that implies full anonymity right and you know for instance zuko who was an early bitcoiner a long long time cyberpunk he saw bitcoin he was dissatisfied he made zcash which is potentially stronger privacy mm-hmm. um yeah that's, that's probably one of the the best critiques of bitcoin um you 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 pair it with the fact that people some people hold bitcoin in a custodial setting it makes it even more difficult because the state has leverage over those institutions yeah 
Right. Like, like if you hold some Bitcoin with, with Coinbase, uh, obviously, like that's an institution. Now, my understanding is that they're pretty reliable internally, but that, you know, if the law comes knocking, uh, obviously, they have to comply. And, but, and then yeah. if you're holding it yourself, uh, you know, the law can, if they know to go after you, the law can kind of do a lot to, to trouble you. But yeah. this, this, this kind of also flips around back to the other side, which is like, in recent decades, at least, I mean, obviously, on the long term timescale, these things can go all over the place. But in recent decades, the practical difference between like, let's say cash and gold has basically been an inflation rate. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm certainly wary of the fact that the state can launch like an extremely significant griefing attack on right. Bitcoin. Uh, they could do it through the IRS. They arguably they are already. Uh, Bitcoin is taxed as property, which is pretty weird if you ask me i mean if it's a currency so i don't see why you should be exposed to capital gains taxes you don't pay capital gains taxes on dollars when they go up in value right do, do you pay capital gains on uh foreign currencies if they go on up? forex yeah with some exceptions yeah so that's actually a really interesting specific way that the dollar has a special status right, right. um just through the, the vector of taxation um so the, the IRS now asks you to identify yourself if you're a cryptocurrency user. That's a new thing uh -huh. that they do. Um, so, you know, they're kind of building a database already. Yeah. Um, and obviously there's AML. You know, FinCEN was like really the first regulatory authority to take Bitcoin seriously because that's they realized, you know, oh, there's a tax implication here. We need to, you know, make sure that we crack down really hard on people that are using Bitcoin and so there have been lots of jail sentences metered out for people that use local bitcoins oh, to really? um, to effectively act as, as distributors for, for you know dark bitcoin or anonymous bitcoin like like i guess basically the state is fine with with bitcoin as an asset class it's like okay you can hold this asset class but you know if you make gains like everything else you have to pay capital gains um and yeah and th that's not the only way that they make life difficult for Bitcoiners. So I would say that the U.S. government is conducting a low-level griefing attack against Bitcoiners mm -hmm. currently. Now, they could step it up by like five full degrees if they wanted yeah. and go full Roosevelt Order 6102, you know, turn in your Bitcoin or go to jail. I think that's unlikely Yeah, because, you know, that would... Like the, the context when that the gold confiscation happened in the 30s was a very different political context from today, right? Yes. The, the central government was much stronger, arguably much closer to fascism than what... I mean, some people would say we have a fascist government today, but we actually have a pretty weak central government today. Yeah, it, it's, it's fairly uh, diffuse. Yeah. And, you know, the legislature was very malleable back then. Uh, you know, today there's, there's, you know, less central authority in, in, you know, us politics. And so mm -hmm. I think it'd be difficult to yeah. push through a, a wholesale confiscation of billions of dollars of property. That's just yeah. sort of fundamentally un-American, just massively eminent domaining, you know, 50, hundred billion dollars worth of property. And yeah, and but they, would they wouldn't necessarily do it in a ham fisted way. And the, the other thing is like, is there actually reason to do it? Right. There's. It, right like they they first of all like they seem to have many of these tools that can like get the thing under their control without doing anything really overt and really blatant right like all these little things like okay as taxpayer you should identify yourself if you're using bitcoin and you should pay capital gains and all these little things that basically 
bring it sort of within their their regime of control. Um, so there's a lot of like basic stuff they can do to get the thing under control. The other thing is they don't have to necessarily do more than that, right? They like what what concrete threat does Bitcoin actually pose to the state? It's, yeah. At, at at best, it's like um like like some of the things that that I can think of are like the sensorability thing, though that's actually not really used ex- except in the case, I guess, of sort of terrorist organizations and so on. So they want to make sure to keep that power. Um, and they, they, they like to be able to print money occasionally. Yeah. Uh, they don't like to balance the budget. And I think, um, a a, a currency or like a, a, a very easily accessible asset or currency that is immune from inflation potentially affects the ability to not balance the budget. Right. But on the other hand, that's not fatal. Because that's just like, oh, I guess we have to tax harder and spend a bit less. Yeah, it, it just eliminates the implicit monetization method as opposed to the explicit one. But yeah, I mean, the, the obvious... Like, can, can you expand what you mean by implicit and explicit monetization? Well, if you talk to Austrians or, you know, fiscal conservatives or anything, they tend to prefer taxation as a method of financing the government as opposed to effectively monetary issuance, inflation... Yeah seniorage whatever you want to call it because taxation is like is like pretty coercive it it, you know it requires that people are aware of what's happening and so generally speaking there's there's more political constraints to taxation i would say yeah but but also if you look at that like just on the monetary policy side like if you're if you're just printing money and not taxing your money has no value right like there's there's no sort of demand sink for it yeah whereas if you're taxing it like people need the money because they have to pay their property taxes in dollars, right? Um, or whatever, and, or their income taxes or or their capital gains taxes, right? Like, so they, there's this demand creation effect of taxation. And that's, that's kind of driving, I think, like, if you think of if you just sort of imagine an idealized central bank that can do as much printing money as it wants, and as much taxing as it wants, and can get away with that, like, you, you definitely want to do uh, a, a lot of taxation relative like relatively balanced to your spending simply because you want to keep uh you want the the money to retain value as it moves through the market um, yeah taxation is, is is a necessary component i mean if you look at yeah. uh modern monetary theory which is rapidly becoming dominant uh right. ideologically in the u.s that's the purpose of taxation it's not even financing the government it's uh, yeah. effectively destroying money or um, uh, it, capping inflation. That's that's the purpose of taxation, which kind of right. seems inverted, but sort of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of like there's different perspectives with which you can look at these things, right? Like on the one hand, if you have a government with its coffers based on gold, like taxation is needed to finance the government. On the other hand, if the money is, is sort of imaginary, it's fiat, um, you still need the taxation because you have to give the money value um, and and the actual kind of budget balancing seems to work out the same way. And I'm interested in how Bitcoin kind of impinges on this, like does having this kind of safe haven store of value that's immune to inflation, it, it would seem to me that it kind of sharpens the need to balance the budget a bit but doesn't fundamentally change the nature of the game like the government still kind of is going to tax in dollars and spend in dollars yeah and to be clear bitcoin isn't actually big enough to move the needle here yet 
Well, suppose we're, it was. We're talking I, I, this is sort of decades. A, yeah. Yeah. Uh, like so, a hyper Bitcoinization scenario. Let's say Bitcoin was highly liquid, very big, and available to citizens with l- limited friction. Um, the the most direct way it would uh, impair the government's ability to operate would be to create an offshore tax haven, effectively. Um, well, assuming not, people could evade the surveillance. Yeah, yeah. So, say for the arguendo that they could, um, that would be the the very direct way. But then the more indirect and more interesting way is, well, what if there was this alternative monetary system we could opt into, and then we wouldn't be subject to inflation as a way to finance the government, which is, you know, inflation-based financing kind of requires the coercion of being of inducing people to hold dollars we're being forced into this dollar economy. Yeah. And we're defaulted into that now, but you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. So the existence of like a viable off-ramp or alternative would make that much more difficult and it would right. mean that the um you know, that the net effect of dollar issuance would probably be more inflationary. Uh if people weren't willing to hold it, you know, it would, it would have a higher velocity. Well, it, it would it would be like the the net effect of inflationary issuance would be more inflationary because uh, people would be able to rapidly flee to right. Bitcoin. Yeah. But if they're not issuing on an inflationary basis, then uh, then that wouldn't cause inflation. Like if they were actually yeah. balancing the budget, taxing as much as they spend, then Bitcoin basically just acts as an asset class um, and and doesn't effectively do anything to the dollar as far as i can tell it only does it if they're uh if the budget is unbalanced yeah if they're if they're issuing at a rate commensurate with like nominal gdp growth it yeah it then or you know or, or, yeah more responsible with with taxation i think because like even if they're I- issuing with with nominal gdp growth uh well bitcoin is fixed money supply so you would just hang out in bitcoin um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you, I, I would agree with that caveat. Um, inflationary issuance would be easier to effectively opt out of. Um, right, exactly. And we, we actually see an analog of this in certain Latin American con- countries where the um, it's not Bitcoin that is that monetary uh, kind of disciplinary force, but it's the dollar. Right. And if the local monetary authority behaves irresponsibly, people... Uh, can bargain effectively with them by mm-hmm. by moving more of their savings to dollars. So by sort of uh, partially dollarizing. Yeah, um, it, it's sort of which it, it's it, a check on on the local authority effectively. Yeah, well, it's a check specifically on like sort of uncoordinated, irrational action by the authority, like in the in the form of of spending money without taxing and and without balancing the budget. Like it, it sort of just removes this ultimately fake option like the the option of just printing money and like pouring it into the economy is kind of fake it's it's not actually sort of creating value it just shuffles the value around in a way that is like less disciplined um and as opposed to like coordinating taxation with spending um which I, i from what i understand in some of these latin american countries the taxation thing is like politically much more difficult than the spending but yeah. that's because those governments are weak not because like it's not that the government is working well and then you know these like dollars coming in and and reducing its power rather it's like the government is weak and the dollar is coming in and not letting it get away with that 
Yeah, there's there's political constraints both to taxation and to inflation. You know, mm-hmm. the constraint to taxation is like a rise of a big shadow economy or informal economy. Right. And then the constraint to inflation is, of course, people just opting out of that um, monetary medium, you know. And, and so Bitcoin makes the latter thing, m- like, possibly, you know, hopefully Much easier. Uh, easier, you know. Yeah, so that's the idea. Yeah. And, and so, like, I always like to look at things, again, sort of from the perspective of the state and, and just like or at least from the idealized state. Um you know, it's a little bit of a different perspective than usually taken in, in kind of the Bitcoin sphere, which is which is, uh, as you've been describing, kind of more more uh, against the power of the state, more towards towards like the individual uh, financial actor or something. But like from the perspective of the state, this like f- from the perspective of a competent state, I'm not seeing like that much difference. It's like you still kind of tax, you still spend, and if you have you know your your operation well organized nothing goes wrong it, it just still works just fine um it's just that like you're much more forced to kind of make sure that you actually have the power to pull off those taxation that that taxation you're trying to do and make sure that you actually have the discipline to to sort of spend what you tax um and and so that like it kind of creates creates this like much stronger um, force for disciplined government in, in a way, uh, le- le- like less so, like I like to contrast disciplined government with limited government. It's right. not that it actually removes powers. It's that it forces a level of discipline. Um, yeah, and I, I agree. And, and that's like an interesting kind of, uh, framing that I like to take in this. And, and, and so then like what Bitcoin does is it's this force that kind of accelerates the decay or, or any of these kind of alternate uh monetary assets the dollar included um it's this force that kind of accelerates the decay of a state that has you know lost the mandate in some sense um yeah in in that they're not able to actually tax as much as they think they can and they're not able to discipline their budget and you know if you look at a lot of these these models of how a state can finance itself they generally uh don't really consider the existence of alternatives or right. sinks that people can flee to and so i would absolutely agree with that characterization to the extent that you have credibility and authority in the way that you finance the state and the goods that you provide mm-hmm. um, i don't think there's a threat you know whatsoever but right. it, it's the marginal states that uh, are, are probably going to be more challenged by this right and and then this this like uh, you know, I, I always, I, I've liked to quip in the past that like, okay, yeah, this means like sort of the end of the Westphalian state model, but because Bitcoin is an imperialist force rather than like, uh, an anarchist force, it, it, it allows, or again, Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency in general, it allows the penetration into formerly sovereign financial markets of more disciplined, larger financial markets. That's an interesting way to put it, imperialist. But yeah, the the analogy I think makes sense. I mean, we're talking about um, forcefully imposing uh, potentially uh, a more kind of globalized uh, yeah. uh, sort of financial system on yes. places where where there was no penetration previously, or where the financial system was local. Yeah, where where like basically U.S. foreign policy or whatever had had kind of not bothered to. It sort of invasively try to get into those markets 
um, as much as they could have. Bitcoin is kind of providing this new liquidity and new frictionlessness that uh, that kind of does that for them. And the reason I call it imperialist rather than anarchist is like turning it around on the United States. Again, I think that like a large financial power like the United States has much more ability to be disciplined in its monetary policy and and it has the the sort of guns and military and and yeah. courts to back up its taxation policy um, such that it is not anywhere near as easily harmed by these uh, by this sort of new frictionlessness that that is created by cryptocurrency and so uh, this this um, like to the extent that cryptocurrency harms states, it seems to harm the weakest states um, to the benefit of the strongest states. Yeah, and I think if, if the U.S. plays its cards right, it can massively benefit from right. the existence of this new uh, kind of institutional technology, mm-hmm. uh, both from the perspective that it looks like one of the early killer use cases here is actually just inserting dollars on chain. Right not any other sovereign currency, dollars specifically. Yeah, can you go into how that kind of works? Like I, I've heard of stable coins. I, I understand like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and so on, but but this idea of inserting dollars onto the chain or like dollarized banknotes or something, that's something new to me. I'd like to kind yeah. of hear more about that. So this is actually a new spin on a very old idea. In fact, an idea that precedes modern central banking. So right. you know, free banking is basically the idea that you don't actually need a state to govern banking activity or really even monetary issuance. It can just happen in a free market kind of way and be stable. So mm-hmm. we had a s- somewhat free banking system in the um, in the 1800s in the U.S., uh, yeah. but it wasn't truly free because states imposed limits, like individual states. Um, yeah. They kind of regulated it. Um, well, but, well the, state, the state wants to maintain control of the economy, right? And, and part of the way they do that is by controlling their currency regime. Yeah, so then you had a bunch of um, basically bank-issued notes that traded at, at free-floating prices, and they were traded discounts to each other, and it was a mess. And you know that's part of the reason that the Federal Reserve was created. But right. in other historical epochs, you did have very successful free banking, where the state itself was actually really not involved in the money supply, and it was kind of set by the free market, just based on the demand for credit in the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so Scotland is really the canonical example, um, from, uh, from the early 1700s to the mid 1800s, they had a very stable free banking system where banks just issued notes against uh, specie against, uh, gold deposits yeah. in their vaults. And those notes, uh, were mutually accepted by other banks. And there was very, very little regulation, very little government oversight, Um, And there was virtually no inflation and bank failures were very rare. Um, So stable coins. And and, and the low inflation is largely because um, things were ultimately based on gold. Is is that? Yeah, because they're based on gold and because there was a um, because it was effectively a a relatively pure capitalist system. And if you overissued notes, so if you, you know, created inflation locally, you'd be punished by the market. Yeah, competitors would do a forcible redemption of your own notes against yeah. you to drain yeah, the specie in your vaults. Right, they they would flee 
yeah fl- flee your flee your currency or your sort of quasi currency yeah so there was a economic incentive not to overissue, which actually kept things really stable so right so, so what we're talking about there is effectively a gold standard yeah gold standard but not in the like Bretton woods gold standard sense like a like a truly kind of bottoms up system yeah. where the banks are the the individual economic actors and then they mm-hmm. they choose how much currency to issue which by the way was in excess of the gold reserves so it was a fractional system, but it w- it was stable. But not not so fractional that it uh, or like there was discipline on it as a yeah. result of like these this sort of threat of of redemption. Yeah, it, it was a stable fractional system. And <sighs> sorry, that's my dog barking in the background. Um, you know, there's a certain Austrian faction. That, you know, mm-hmm. the Rothbardians will say, well, <sighs> anything other than a full reserve is like fraud. Um, I'm probably not part of that faction. I definitely buy the the historical anecdote, but that actually doesn't matter too much. Anyway, the point yeah. is that is effectively the precursor to what's happening now with stable coins. Stable coins involve, for the most part, they can be issued in a number of ways. The most popular way is for banks to issue tokenized IOUs for dollars or dollar instruments held in their vaults. Uh, not physical vaults, I guess. Yeah, the, um, the digital vault or whatever it is. And so then those IOUs are claims on those bank liabilities, which circulate on-chain, which is to say, you know, they're cryptographic assets, which exist on blockchains. Which which chains are these? Are this is just like happening on the Ethereum blockchain with, with tokens or something? Yeah, so it's actually technologically not that difficult to um, to create... Uh, tokens um anywhere so like the the first um uh stable coin was tether uh well it wasn't the first but it was the first popular one and yeah. uh initially there were billions of dollars of tether existing on bitcoin um there was this op code which allows you to insert arbitrary data into bitcoin called op return so it used op return basically right. just a, a schema for encoding information um yeah. and then eventually tether moved over to ethereum for kind of for efficiency's sake and because um, there was a standard on Ethereum called ERC-20. It doesn't right. actually matter that much. But the point is there's stable coins that exist on actually, I would say, dozens of blockchains. Ethereum is definitely the most popular place to issue them because it's very easy okay. to, exi- um, to issue tokens on Ethereum. And there's a lot of kind of financial infrastructure that supports it. And it's, yeah, th- there's like a big industry around these things um, and it's easy for exchanges. Um, and so effectively you have today, you have $9 billion worth of stable coins that circulate on Ethereum and other blockchains. And, and by stable coins here, you mean roughly this kind of old free banking model, but just backed by dollars. Yeah. Although in some of them are backed by, and this is where it gets pretty interesting, backed by cryptocurrency. So like ether, right. uh, in some cases, Bitcoin, some other coins, and those that starts to really resemble the free banking era because those are the those are analogous to gold. Yeah, they're in the gold. in the specific sense that not in like the meme sense that like Bitcoin is digital gold, but in the specific sense that they're liability free. Right. So, you know, well, Bit- what does that mean? Bitcoin's value derives from the fact that the market just assesses it as having a value. Same with right. Ethereum. You may not think that's the most stable thing in the world, but 
it's not um its value isn't backstopped by like someone else's promise to redeem something for it um so it's not like a liability yeah or or in the case of the dollar uh backed by your liability to pay taxes in dollars exactly so like if you have a stable coin that depends on a dollar in a bank account that's still a liability of the banking system and that requires like the fed to step in if like that bank is not insured by fdic that's a liability mm-hmm. of the bank itself and like banks fail right so there's no guarantee that that collateral is like safe if you mm-hmm. issue a stable coin against a deposit of cryptocurrency that's a liability free deposit which means you know you're solvent um if you want redemption uh, you know assuming the value of the cryptocurrency doesn't fall too quickly or too dramatically so well, you have also to- also assuming that whoever's holding that crypto is not sort of doing fractional reserve stuff with it. Yeah, but the the beauty of the crypto-backed stablecoins is that uh, you just create a smart contract that works automatically and manages the the risk effectively. And for the crypto-backed ones, they're over-collateralized, whereas for, um, for in the free banking system, for efficiency's sake, you know, those... Uh, liabilities or the banknotes were under collateralized, you know, they weren't fully reserved. So out of precaution, some of the stable coins issued against cryptocurrency, they're, they're, they, they're like excessively reserved. Um, so it would be interesting if we'd go back to that model where you have a partial reserve, which is much more efficient, but we're, mm-hmm. you know, we're still in the, in the pretty early days of this regardless. Yeah, and, like, and, it, and these, these, these sort of schemes are you're saying what's kind of penetrating into uh, some of these weaker states, yeah, uh, allowing dollars to penetrate. Yeah, it's it's really interesting how it's happening. So first of all, stablecoins or you know crypto fiat is probably a more accurate way to put it. Okay. Um, they were just used to move money around between exchanges so that traders could like do arbitrage and have a cryptographic asset which had the volatility characteristics of sovereign currency. That was the first use case. However, in the last few months, um, you know, since March, really, uh, there's been this huge global demand for dollars. Everyone everyone wants dollars. Is that related to the coronavirus? Like everyone getting out of everything, going into dollars because of uncertainty? Yeah. And like, you know, people complain about the Fed printing, but, you know, there's been a huge deflationary shock and the price of the dollar rallied a lot. So, yeah. We've had this massive global demand for dollars, and that's also been manifested on chain. You can see the creation of stable coins, dollar-backed stable coins. There have been about three billion dollars created since March the twelfth, which, which was relative to a base of six billion dollars before that. So, massive issuance of of dollar-backed sort of crypto tokens. Interesting. Um, and you know, anecdotally, it's it's hard to get like data on this because people that use stable coins don't really want to be known. Yeah. But um, anecdotally, a lot of it is for Southeast Asia, for individuals that want effectively a dollar bank account without touching the banking system because their local banking system might be corrupt. Yeah. It may not actually allow them to have dollar exposure. They might have to have exposure in the local currency. Their local currency might be depreciating really quickly. Right. So we see this in Latin America, we see it in China, Asia. Right. Um, so, so again, we're looking at these kind of weaker and more corrupt states that are less able to kind of run their own affairs financially, and people are wanting to opt out of, of that chaos. 
Yeah, and if you look at some of the Latin American currencies, they sold off against the dollar like crazy. And, you know, mm -hmm. some of these countries are already dollarized. Um, Venezuela is undergoing dollarization right now. Ecuador yeah. is dollarized. Panama is dollarized. Colombia and Peru are like partially dollarized. So these are very uh, ripe places for this influx of crypto dollars, which are held outside of the banking system, which allows you to avoid um, episodes like in Argentina, I think it was 2001, the government just, they had dollar deposits in the bank. And one day the government just suspended convertibility and gave everyone a massive haircut. Poof. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to avoid something like that, you, having this, these dollars in the payload of a crypto asset is really nice because all you need to do is memorize a private key or write it down. Right. And, and again, like if, if the government's going to come after that, they, they need sort of much more surveillance and taxation infrastructure than just like ordering the bank to make the money go poof. Yeah. They don't have a lot of options. It's just much more expensive. It's probably still possible, but it's just much, much more expensive. Yeah. And, you know, not all of these states, especially not in the global South, they don't have the surveillance and control infrastructure that the U.S. has. Right, so exactly. they're up against a pretty difficult adversary uh, when it comes to, to crypto assets. Yeah, that's OK. That's really interesting. It's good to know sort of how that's all working. So on, on the United States side, I mean, we've, we've talked about how there's been relatively low inflation. But, you know, some hypotheses I've heard are that like the very high kind of rate of effective inflation in let's say real estate yeah um it is a result of actually like sh sort of a, a hidden inflation like the government is in fact printing a lot more money than it's than it's uh than it's taxing like we do have this large kind of uh, imbalance in the budget and that that's coming like that kind of extra monetary supply is just ending up inflating these these sort of remaining hard assets like real estate. Yeah, I, I certainly buy that. I mean, you know, I work in the industry of asset management, right? Right. Um, uh, if you look at public equity valuations, not just real estate, but, you know, financial assets that are meant to be inflation resistant, right? Because yeah. uh, stocks, the value of a stock is just like the discounted set of cash flows um, yeah. stretching into the future that should be inflation indexed in theory, right? So, you know, Apple is still going to earn, you know, X purchasing power units worth of uh, revenue or net income mm -hmm. stretching into the future, regardless of what, um, you know, what the value of a dollar is. Uh, they're still providing real, you know, capital R real value to the world. Right. They're, they're actually making like X number of MacBooks and selling them. Yeah. Uh, and, and like... The, you know, the value of the dollar impacts that to some extent, but not that much. Yeah. So if the price of a MacBook goes from, you know, th thanks to inflation, goes from 1200 bucks to $40,000, that shouldn't, in theory, affect the value of Apple shares. Um, in, in real terms. In real terms, yeah. So stocks are, are effectively, but not always, inflation indexed. Um, right. So Inflation index means inflation resistant. Right. And yeah. so it's been interesting. We've seen massive run-ups in stocks. Uh, not just in like nominal terms, but like relative to earnings. Um, so, you know, they're historically richly priced relative to the earnings. So, um, yeah, the, the value investors are, are kind of wary of, of that right now. Yeah. I mean, it it's basically doesn't make sense to be a value investor. Value investors have been crushed over the last decade. So this right. is like the asset inflation theory that inflation has been manifested in the context of financial and 
um, capital assets uh, instead of in in CPI. In like CPI is yeah. built out of like what a TV costs and like <laughs> what a Big Mac costs. Um, yeah, well, so, like those those know. two different there's two different kinds of inflation. So uh, I guess the other problem with CPI is like they deliberately manipulate it to like track mostly the goods that are like just getting cheaper in real terms like TVs. Um, but th there's two types of inflation, right? There's the type of inflation that comes from actually higher circulating money supply right now, which results in higher consumer prices. Um, and then there's because like, you know, fixed amount of purchasing power on the market, you know, divided or like X number of dollars divided by, you know, Y amount of, uh, sort of fixed purchasing power. If there's more dollars, the prices go up just because there's more dollars around. But then you have, but that's unrelated to kind of like expected inflation and so on, which is sort of what's driving the asset inflation thing. The asset inflation thing is the expectation by investors that the money supply will continue to increase or effective money supply or something like that will continue to increase such that um, holding hard assets is better than holding dollars. Right. Um, I, I, and, and so that's what we're talking about with this asset inflation is that people are expecting that hard assets are going to continue to appreciate um, because they expect it's like expecting kind of the money supply, I guess, to increase. I would say that's definitely part of it. Um, you know, the, the expectation of, of inflation um, for sure. Uh, the other thing I would say is, you know, money has like a non-neutral trajectory through the economy as it's created. Right. right. So this is like, people call this the Cantillon effect. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, specifically what that means is like the first recipient, the first recipients of like new issuance of money or currency, they kind of have an advantage because the value of that money may not have been priced in yet. The value or the effect of that issuance might not have been priced in yet. Um, right. So it's kind of like if you, this is the analogy that Richard Cantillon gave if you have a river and you add a bunch of water to one end of the river, the whole river's um, level doesn't rise all at once across a hundred miles of river. Instead, yeah. you get this hump, you know, of water that flows downstream and gradually it settles out, but it takes a while. So in the case of the fed, you know, they mostly uh, not interfere, but uh, they mostly involve themselves in the money supply through the domain of interest rates we've had like a falling effectively a structurally falling interest rate regime here uh, since the seventies really. Um, and what that does is that makes it cheaper and cheaper to issue debt. Um, and, you know, one way that companies and really the managerial class, the shareholder class, the executive mm -hmm. class have been the beneficiaries of this um, is by levering up, uh, you know, corporations and, uh, this is the big critique about buybacks by issuing themselves lots of shares and then kind of um, uh, neutralizing the effect of that share-based issuance by um, adding debt to the to the kind of corporate balance sheet, um, you know, and, and the, the value of that debt becomes less and less over time. Um, right. And as interest rates drop, it's easier and cheaper to refinance it. So that's like a major way. It's just effectively through the financialization of productive capacity that allows this class of individuals that have control over corporations to sort of exploit this structural decline in interest rates, which is if you if you listen to a lot of the commentators on the bailouts or 
you know, the moral hazard uh, or the issues with monetary policy. That's something they focus on a lot. Yeah, I've, heard, I've definitely heard a lot of that. So that's like, that's the way that being a Cantillon insider is profitable today. This trade, you could say it's the Bob Bourbon trade. The other side of it is that you're insulated from the, because like that debt has a cost, right? It, it makes you more fragile. But if yeah. you are able to successfully lobby for a bailout when things go wrong, then you're insulated against the downside risk, then the cost yeah. of the debt is neutralized. So it's a great trade if you can right. get it. Right, yeah. So if you're in that sort of bailout, easy access to debt class, um, yeah, you, you can just inflate your, your balance sheet basically yeah. at, at effectively public expense. Yeah, so this is like the whole issue with with uh, monetary issuance is that it has this non-neutral trajectory through the economy and the people that have been able to benefit from it are the people that can borrow cheaply. Now, normal people can't borrow cheaply. Yeah, so, so this... <laughs> the APR yeah, on their it, credit card might be 25%. Right, actually, yeah, so this is really interesting to me um, with respect to the effect of Bitcoin. So this is like separating conceptually like the central bank that's spending money on government projects or whatever from this kind of quasi-public, quasi-private um, banking sector, like the the large banking sector that's doing this kind of debt issuance um, interest rate stuff. The, the, the effect of Bitcoin, like my very vague understanding has been that Bitcoin will somehow impinge on that and, and, um, and like make it more difficult to kind of play those games. Is that is that a correct understanding or not? I, I, I actually don't know. I, I hope so. Um, the Fed is reaching the end of its tether anyway. So interest in rates sense? can't fall much further because they're, right. they're right. zero in nominal terms. They're negative in real terms, right? So yeah. you know, if you put money in the bank or you borrow money, um, you're, or you effectively lend money to the bank by depositing dollars, even with the you know the nominal interest rate, thanks to inflation, that's effectively going to be negative. So you're paying the bank uh, to deposit, which is the opposite of the way it's been for five thousand years. So we've reached the the limit there. If they impose really deep negative interest rates, like in Switzerland, they're pretty negative. Uh, people will just stop depositing money in banks. They'll like hold it in cash or something. So there are like fundamental kind of like really but holding it real like limits to negative interest yeah. rates you, you can't yeah. do it like for the sake of argument you can't do a negative 10 percent interest rate because people just won't use the banking system at that point so yeah but i i guess there's like the question of what else can they do with their money so holding it in cash they're still subject to inflation right yeah um for sure and, and so they might want to buy assets but they might not be in the class that sort of has access to kind of relatively liquid uh asset-based uh, holding people scramble for alternatives when you get to low interest rate yeah. regimes which is why assets are so expensive right now by the way because mm -hmm. people realize you know you're not going to earn anything from bonds you're not going to earn any interest from cash in the bank okay i might as well buy the s p 500 even if yeah. it's like super expensive that's buy partially stocks, buy houses. that's an, that's another reason why we have this asset inflation we've had this like structural demand that american savers pile into financial assets, even if they're risky, even if they don't understand the risk, we've encouraged them to do it for a few decades now in a yeah, really and, like specific way. Yeah. And this looks like, I, I mean, from the sort of, 
I, I sort of understand modern monetary theory as like a way of looking at this. And from that perspective, it's like, okay, the state has somehow broken down in discipline of actually sort of taxing relative to the amount of money that's being created um, as such that like we're, we're getting this asset inflation problem where the money is starting to lose value, where people don't want to be hanging out in, in cash. They don't want to be doing cash-based things. They want to get into Bitcoin. They want to get into real estate. They want to get into stocks. Um, and that's sort of like what you would predict from that view of like, yeah. you're not taxing enough relative to how much you're, you're kind of creating money. And, um, and, and that results kind of in the loss of the power of the state, or in this case, whoever is creating the money over the economy. Like, like they run out of tether, like you're saying. Like there is actually an underlying at least conceptual balance sheet that has to be balanced and it's not being balanced. Yeah. And, and so like, this is the big argument between Bitcoiners or Austrians and both Neo Keynesians and, you know, MMT theorists. It's, you know, from my perspective, there are real constraints to all this behavior. There is a limit yes. to the amount of both monetary and fiscal activity that a government can do. And that limit is a, bottom-up organic phenomenon of individuals opting out of the system which yeah, opting to know, alternate asset classes and it, it was hard to do that it's historically been hard that's why people like gold that's why society places at you know eight trillion dollar value on gold in the aggregate um, yeah. which is pretty large relative to the world's productive capacity by the way um, right. it, you know and for like a rock which is inert and does very little um, and the existence and the financialization or the monetization of bitcoin gives people a much better or you know better in some respects at least alternative which is you know that's why it's so interesting to me it gives you the choice at a very basic individual level do i want to opt out of this system which demands my full cooperation yeah. which demands that i buy stocks that i participate in this highly consumerist economy yeah um, and again it's it's like allowing the market effectively to force a discipline on this this kind of undisciplined monetary activity. Yeah, it's very much market driven. And that's the beauty of it. I think markets are the right way to price things. I don't think the state mm -hmm. fundamentally has an advantage when it comes to pricing things. That's really the problem with socialism, in my opinion, uh, mm -hmm. is that it's a problem of information. It's hard to set prices for everything all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at prices as 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 an information carrier, um, you don't want to be messing with that. And and I guess the the sort of applicability to this argument is that the the fooling around with interest rates and and money supply in the in the Marquesian uh, model is effectively something like. Uh, price manipulation. Well, yeah, it's not just manipulation, it's price setting. Like, look at the yeah. chart of interest rates in the US. It's like a staircase function. No market right. looks like that, right? Right. Even if, like, the Fed is, like, directionally correct on interest rates, which I don't think they are, uh, it's still artificial, you know? And mm -hmm. they would say, well, we have to do this for, um, for like, good reasons. We have to be counter-cyclical. We need to inject money into the economy at the right times. But like mm -hmm. since the rise of central banking, it's not like financial panics and financial crises have been any less common or any less no. worse. So, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? And let's distinguish what they're doing now from sort of central banking 
in the abstract. Like I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not yeah, an economist, let alone, yeah. let alone a, a macroeconomist, but like the central bank, from what I understand is this, like conceptually, there's this issuer of money that basically can print as much money as they want and they spend it on government projects. And then they kind of make that money back, at least sort of conceptually, yeah. they, they yeah. give that money value through the taxation regime. Um, or in the more Austrian view, they, they finance that through the taxation regime. And then that conceptually is separate from this like large scale kind of the, the, the debt money supply manipulation stuff, which goes on in the modern quasi public banking system. Well, yeah, there's a big difference between central banking from 1913 to 1971 and 1971 to present from 13 to 71. There was still a tethered gold. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there was like gold was exerting that discipline because like the literal number of ounces of gold you had was a check on your ability to, to issue 1971 onwards, the tether broke and we have a new regime and you know, you might say, well, how did central banks perform in that time? We've had plenty of financial crises. We've had plenty of pretty bad ones. Recessions mm-hmm. still happen. You know, it's not like they managed to fix recessions or anything. So, you know, you can you can think that central banking is valid whilst also maintaining, well, like, look at the track record. It's not that good. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to distinguish like this, this sort of like post 1970s uh, regime, which, which is what I'm calling, like, you can call it sort of this neoliberal kind of yeah. quasi public banking. Yeah, um, post Bretton Woods, yeah. Bretton Woods too. Yeah. Whatever. You want um, to call it. So, so yeah. So that stuff that could be distinguished from like a pure fiat central bank that is just, um, like doing much more direct investment rather than kind of indirecting it through this quasi-public um, banking system. Now, I, I don't understand this stuff very well, but I, I do I do think that there's a distinction there to be made. Yeah. It's not like central banking as such, not even fiat central banking as such, but it's the particular system that we have that's that's kind of not working so well. Well, the caveat I would add, or, you know, the distinction I'd make is like modern, if you look at all the you know, currency in circulation of the dollars in your bank account. Most of those are actually privately created. They're created by like commercial banks, right? And then right. there's that's what I'm calling quasi public. Yeah, like, yeah, the, yeah. Private is like in pretty big air quotes there. Yeah. So it's it's a good point. It's like a good caveat. So you know, there's some amount of M zero, like a monetary base, which is the accounts that commercial banks have with the Fed directly, and then the the actual physical currency that the central bank prints. And mm-hmm. the, but you know, if you look at if you add it all up and you look at like bank liabilities the the main thing that we call money or dollars that is mostly created by commercial banks based on lending activity so there mm-hmm. that is related fundamentally to like the economy so that's that's still like for the most part a free market process although okay. interest rates affect that but what's happening now is we're like transitioning into a new regime where commercial banks are less and less relevant they've less and less discretion and the central bank becomes much more important which is what's happening right now. The, the, the central bank meaning here, like the Fed. Yeah, the Fed. Yeah, like the, they're embarking on a period of untrammeled um, monetary base creation, right? So mm-hmm. just in the last few weeks. So, and, you know, we have the discussion about CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. What that means right. is the Fed or central banks globally becoming retail-facing institutions where you would have an account directly with the Fed instead of with like Chase Bank or, you know, your local commercial mm-hmm. bank. So we have the government taking a much greater role in commercial banking 
like China is rolling one out called DCEP. You know, it looks like we're trend as cash becomes less important, um, and as like the role of government starts to increase, and their involvement in the economy starts to increase, it looks like central banks are going to take a much more active role in in currency, even though they and, and and in this in this particular like much more debt based pattern rather than uh, like again, there's this other model which is like instead of uh, instead of sort of just doing it by the interest rates and, and making making debt available to investors and so on. Yeah. Um, you, you could do it like more like, okay, well, we want to buy some weapons from Lockheed. So we're just going to print some money and do yeah. that. Yeah. And like previously there was a, there was a, a barrier erected between the federal reserve and the treasury. Right. And you right. know the U S government still had to print debt uh, in order to finance its operations. And then the fed was meant to do its own thing be independent that barrier is rapidly eroding. In England, right. it's gone. Uh, the Bank of England, England is now directly financing uh, kind of fiscal activity. Um, right. What modern monetary theorists say is, well, all fiscal activity should be financed by issuance. Uh, we don't have to worry about debt. The government can buy anything for sale in its own currency. That's like a famous quote from Stephanie Kelton. Right, and, and the idea of that is just like, uh, or, or the disciplining force there is simply that to keep that currency having value, you have to continue raising taxes in in that currency, or you know, grow the grow the productive capacity of the economy, for right. instance. Yeah, yeah, and and then I like I have sympathy to that view. It it seems like a relatively simple statement of what's actually going on with respect to like the powers of the government and how the economy works. And it's it's like yeah they can just go and print money and buy stuff, but there's this other side of that balance sheet which is they have to be taxing, um, and make sure that what they're buying is is not kind of uh, doesn't have like huge opportunity costs with respect to like what the market might do otherwise, yeah. such that you're you're actually like contracting your industrial capacity or something. Yeah, so it works as long as you're allocating in uh in like a reasonable way. And you're right. not allocating exactly. in a wasteful way. The question is, like, are bureaucrats the best allocators, or is the market certainly not the best by current allocator? bureaucrats? Yeah, I mean, uh, in the current patterns. <laughs> yeah, so like, you know, is the state ultimately the best arbiter of where uh, where financing should flow in the economy? Or well, there's the there's two market? things, right? There's there's like, what does the state want to buy versus like. Uh, who should be running kind of the the financing operations for stuff happening in the market. And I think those should be separated, right? Like the, the state wants to buy basically weapons and infrastructure, and it wants to buy those for their use value, right? Um, as opposed to their like economic stimulus effect or whatever. Right. Um, and, and then you have on the private side, like you theoretically have a bunch of private institutions running around with big piles of money they're doing investment and they're investing in new companies they're investing in like you know someone wants to expand their oil field they need a big huge capital outlay to do that um like that kind of stuff much more plausibly kind of just the market should handle that um but then there is this question of like okay the state wants to buy something for reasons of state that sort like modern monetary theory seems to apply to that quite naturally well and you know, the problem with that latter category that you mentioned, like capital investment, is the state is increasingly becoming interested in that. Right. Uh, and that, know, that's the current situation. Yeah. You look at all these SPVs the Fed has set up to buy, uh, 
you below investment grade bonds on the secondary market. Like that's them mm -hmm. getting involved in the business of asset management. Um, yeah, and and, and allocation like that's that's them getting involved in the market allocation process as opposed to like the state commanding the economy to do something useful to it. Like those are two yeah, different, and like two different things. arguably the state should invest in defense, obviously, and, right? Defense and, and, infrastructure, and infrastructure, whatever. But you know, do they have uh, you know definite ability to uh, select the right investment gate grade bond index? I mean, I doubt it. Um, yeah, well, that that's that's not necessary. That's that's a very different capacity at the very least, whether or not they have it. It's a different capacity from like purchasing things that the state wants. Yeah, it, it just seems outside of their mandate, realistically, from my perspective. Right. And so the fact that they're now intimately involved in, in the allocation of capital, you know, in financial markets is perturbing to me um, and, mm -hmm. and a sign that like we've gone a little bit too far in terms of their authority. Yeah. I, yeah. And again, like I, I always sort of analyze this through the lens of like discipline and and whether they're doing the right thing, even from their own perspective. And it, it looks like to me, like assuming our analysis is correct here, that there's something wrong with that, that it's that it's uh, like the state is kind of making a mistake and, and losing coherence basically in in doing this. Or it's like it's it's losing some wisdom somewhere and it's uh it, it's not delegating things that it should be delegating and instead trying to like directly micromanage them and not for kind of coherent reason but because um you know they've lost control of some other part and and they're sort of trying to keep things afloat uh for for like often corrupt reasons the other risk i would say is that you know the representatives of the state are elected by individuals if normal folks see that debt monetization or monetary issuance becomes a plausible mechanism for funding any arbitrary project, they'll naturally start to ask for specific handouts, which benefit yeah. them. And that's not like to say like, oh, like we're going to get a bunch of welfare queens. Like the whole nation, you know, every individual will then believe that it's their right as they probably rightly should to say, well, you know, if we're going to spend we're going to issue $6 trillion to like bail out large corporations. What about me personally? And then, yeah, I've certainly get, seen like, people asking those questions. I, yeah, I think it's very plausible. You know, you might have a genuine populist movement, like a neo-populist movement, you know, in the next couple of years saying, well, where's our bread and circuses? You know, how come right. Boeing gets billions of dollars and we regular folks get nothing and you just get more political pressure to issue for, you know, direct handouts, which then the theory is like that is what manifests in inflation. Yeah, right. And and this is like the, um, you know, the shift of wealth that's happened through this kind of coronavirus bailout. Like it, it sure looks like a large transfer of wealth from like middle class and working people to uh, to these like well-placed uh, people who are benefiting from from the bailout. Yeah. And and yeah, there's going to be like political ramifications of that um, with people sort of demanding their slice of the pie if the government's just engaging in like willy nilly kind of issuance of money all over the place. Um, and then, like you say, that may, that might not be the right idea, right? That that might end up kind of uh, spending money on non prudent uh, things that end up causing inflation and so on. Yeah, you. you and I think you just lose your ability to consistently say like, no, it's urgent that we finance this. 
and no, it's not urgent that we finance your household. You just, right. you lose the authority to say, no, look, we need full discretion over how we're going to use our government funds. If you make yeah, it clear right. that it's very easy and cheap to issue more money. Right. Well, it's basically another way of looking at this is like once you've stopped maintaining the pretense of balancing the budget and it's kind of transparently like you're you're just kind of issuing money to whoever uh, without without kind of any backing discipline to that, then it's like it becomes a very sort of transparently political question, like who gets the money? Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So this is all really interesting. And I'm curious again, like coming back around to like, how does Bitcoin affect this? what like like bitcoin obviously makes the um makes this like negative interest rate thing uh like not viable because people can just hold bitcoin yeah it would be easy to um to transition into bitcoin if the alternative was having your money confiscated in the bank yeah and which is what negative interest rates really mean yeah exactly uh, so, so that's like a real world constraint, for instance, which didn't really exist 10 years ago and now it exists. Obviously, there's other ways to resist ne- negative interest rates, but Bitcoin would be one mm-hmm. really powerful way to do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see kind of the whole thing just like disciplined with according to some logic, like some coherent logic. Um, you know, like I don't mind there being a strong central bank that like issues money to buy weapons and infrastructure from the market like that. That seems totally normal. Uh, you know, even if it has like quite a, a coercive tax regime in terms of how to finance that, it's like, OK, whatever. You know, we live in a society. There's there's things that you can be sure of. And like taxes is one of them. Um, and, and you know, that's just kind of the government's role is to command the economy to do things that it wants it to do. Uh, fine. Right. But but where it's kind of coming at sort of public expense in the sense of the whole community is just losing value and losing kind of coherence of its industrial processes because of like over financialization and like misfinancialization. Um, it it's just it's, it's this kind of undisciplined looting is what it looks yeah. like, and and like to see anything that might kind of force a discipline on that is definitely heartening, and and that's you know hopefully what what cryptocurrencies end up being and you know i don't think the u.s has too much to fear as we talked about early Um, well the u.s as such like the u.s state as such so certainly not you know the u.s still has an enormous productive capacity biggest economy on earth it's actually Mm -hmm. been less inflationary in its in its monetary policy than like the boe the boj you know the Mm -hmm. ecb so the rest of the developed world has been much more aggressive uh in terms of issuance over the last decade relative to the actual productive capacity. So weirdly enough, even though the Fed seems kind of pretty unsteady right now, they've actually been slightly more restrained. And, you know, the demographics look better for the U.S. Mm. It's got a lot of things in its favor. Um, You know, so my view on this is they should actually just embrace these monetary alternatives like Bitcoin, um, put their stamp on it, uh, acknowledge that there is... Um, this phenomenon of putting dollars on chain um, encouraged the Bitcoin industry to develop, which is already yeah. very much U.S.-based in many respects. Right. And I'm not saying co-opt it or try and change it in any way because I don't really think that's possible. Bitcoin is but kind of built... Rec- recognize the value in it and... Yeah, and, and, and stop being, you know, stop like trying to harass Bitcoin users or anything. And, it, you know, accept that this is uh, likely here to stay and that 
it actually is pro-U.S. interests, uh, having private uh, uh, monetary systems, especially in contrast to like authoritarian states like China, which mm-hmm. are trying to like completely have a command and control uh, approach in terms of monetary infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And the, the one risk is, you know, the U.S. will, if these alternatives exist, the U.S. will lose its ability to exert policy through sanctions, right, through the monetary rails that they currently control, which are really powerful yeah. for them. So that's kind of the trade-off here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on on the bright side, you know, distributing dollars to the to the global south on a direct-to-consumer base means they can issue more dollars more cheaply uh, and, and finance you know, government expenditure more cheaply. So it's kind of a trade. Yeah. Well, and, and on the, on the like f- sanctions side of this, um, I mean, physical sanctions are still very much, uh, you know, like if someone, if you really want to blockade someone that that's obviously still an option. Yeah. You, it's, you and still may, have maybe, options. Like, you know, people pretend like financial sanctions are like the only way we can like project power abroad. Yeah. It's no. And, and, and that's, yeah, it's a, it's a totally false pattern to to think that like the power of your state like is or should be entirely dependent on on this like financial control. Um, it like the, the the state is much more fundamentally a organized force projection capability. Yeah, and 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 then like everything else is kind of like how do we organize that and how do we use it um, and and what can it do, but. But like getting maybe like that's another thing that that's interesting about like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is it in some ways does actually, again, force a discipline back to that fundamental like, you know, like a, a lot of Bitcoiners are sort of anti taxation and so on. They think, oh, yeah, taxation is very coercive. But, you know, the other the flip side of that is like, well, you don't take that kind of moral valence. And it's like, yeah, Bitcoin kind of forces us to acknowledge that taxation is a, a coercive action uh, that we are commanding the economy. Um and and that's like it seems like it's adding clarity to the yeah. water like whatever way you look at it it's adding clarity i much prefer a regime which has to transparently fund itself through taxation as opposed to one that un- untransparently finances itself through kind of oh, covert like, issuance yeah the, the financial wizardry yeah and and, and it, it seems like like conceptually the taxation thing seems much more sustainable and seems to make sense to me whereas like the the financial wizardry stuff like every way i try to look at it 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 just doesn't look sustainable to just do things that way uh on the on the long term because eventually like this thing just ends up kind of grown out of control and one last note on uh on sort of global financial infrastructure you know there's lots of countries that are pushing for an alternative to this u.s dominated system of swift and correspondent banking right and they're not doing it very successfully but you know who knows maybe people want to use the petro renminbi in 10 years right so if that is the trend anyway um you know then the the u.s will have a choice between like an issuer which is obviously hostile to the u.s or like a a administrator which is hostile to the u.s or a more politically neutral uh, financial rails in the form of crypto, and I think they would prefer the neutral option there, where there's no entity that has like distinct control over it. Yeah, like if if these financial controls are collapsing anyways, like might as well embrace um, 
the the sort of uncontrolled or more uncontrolled which is still sort of financial. like and yeah and like crypto is still within like the u.s government's aegis it's still compatible with american values you know strong commitment to property yeah. rights individual liberty yeah. autonomy the, the like it's that's incompatible with like current like uh ccp values right so right that's much more right. proximate so, to like our end of the continuum anyway and and it certainly doesn't doesn't really hurt uh U.S. state power, um, you know, modulo this this financial control thing that that might be kind of decaying, anyways. Yeah, I think it's 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 compatible. Uh, I think the U.S. So can guess, still project power in that world. So I guess one one last note then would be like the matchup of China and the U.S. on cryptocurrency, because I know China has a lot of the mining infrastructure, but like cryptocurrency is technically illegal or something there, and you know a lot of the devs on these cryptocurrency projects are american or european um, and a lot of the holders of the coins so i'd be curious to like get your perspective on the information there of like how's this going to play like if 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 things did sort of switch towards a bitcoin uh or more more cryptocurrency based future how does this affect kind of competition between the united states and china yeah it's a good question so china has embraced like this notion of digital currency with their um DCEP, like they've embraced this central bank digital currency notion. And obviously China is home for a lot of um, mining infrastructure for Bitcoin and other coins. Um, I think people sometimes over-index a little bit on like the actual location of these ASICs, these GPUs, like the machines that actually right. mine the coins. Um, if the CCP were to like confiscate all of the ASICs all at once, um, what's likely would be that the Bitcoin community would be galvanized into changing the proof of work hash function. Um, that's kind of like a very cheap fix relative to well, the cost. What could they even that. do? What could they even do with all those ASICs? Like yeah. They so they could like launch a 51% attack yeah, or something. So, you know, in theory, if they could like locate all the mining farms and seize like a whole bunch of ASICs, assuming that there were like 51% of ASICs in China, which is probably the case, but yeah, a lot yeah. of the stuff's actually mined on the black market with, um, you know, otherwise curtailed uh, hydroelectric energy um, kind of in an informal way. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't think they would have that much ability to really interfere with the protocol. Worst comes to worst, I think there would be kind of an emergency hard fork because there's nothing compelling us to say like, oh, yeah, let's just give up and go home. Like, I guess, uh, right. <laughs> you know, I think people would try and react and yeah, you know, more generally, the biggest companies in Bitcoin are American, aside from Bitmain. Mm-hmm. Bitmain is a Chinese company, um, but Coinbase is the biggest Bitcoin exchange in the world. That's an American mm-hmm. company. Kraken, Gemini, you know, you have lots of American businesses that are really central here. Most of well, them. And there's there's that project starting up in Texas to do large-scale Bitcoin yeah, mining in the States. Yeah, you have mining in Texas and in Washington and upstate New York. I've been to an enormous mine in Messina, New York, uh, using hydropower. Um, mm-hmm. So there is obviously a, a North American uh, mining and crypto industry. Uh, yeah, and as you say, uh, many of the devs, uh, the kind of influential devs, are Western Europeans, Americans, Japanese, um, you know, just generally of a Western persuasion. That's not to say mm-hmm. that this like is a American technology per se. It's just that America has a strong opportunity to actually be influential uh, and and you know retain centrality. And yeah, and benefit from it. Like in terms of like 
you know, corporate uh, tax receipts that these exchanges are paying. Um, yeah, well, and, and the political control, right? Like, you know, Coinbase and so on obviously has a lot of ability to report on the the activities of, you know, certain dissidents and, and terrorist groups and criminal groups and so on that, that attempt to use their infrastructure. Yeah, um, I mean, I, a lot of stuff like that where the, where the state gains kind of uh, some power. Yeah, so they have an advantage in, in, in as much as, as the crypto industry is like American uh, in, in nature. Um, yeah. So, they, yeah, it's like a strong starting advantage. So don't, you know, squander it by, uh, by forcing everyone out of the country uh, and into like, you know, Singapore and Hong Kong and so on. You know, I, I think right, they, should, totally. they should embrace it. And like we've seen it, like there's plenty of congressmen that are pro- Pro Bitcoin, pro crypto. Um, yeah, I mean, like someone someone used in Congress with the word shitcoin. Uh, yeah, Warren Davidson. Yeah, um, you have senators uh, Kelly Loeffler, who's sort of mired in scandal, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, she's the the most junior senator from Georgia. She was the right. the former CEO of Backed, which is a Bitcoin exchange. Mm-hmm. So, like, you have this. <laughs> I don't know if I want to call it infiltration, but you like, you know. Congressmen are, are they represent Americans, and as it turns out, Americans tend to like Bitcoin, uh, yeah. or at least like a meaningful fraction of them do. So, right, uh, it's percolating through. Yeah, I mean, well, this has been this has been a great discussion. I, we've we've covered sort of a bunch of the dimensions of how Bitcoin and the state are related, in particular the U.S. state and and sort of weaker states around the world and other states. Um, I've learned a lot. This has been a lot of fun to discuss these topics. If there's anything else uh, you want to add, we can we can get into that now. But I think this would be a good place to wrap up. Yeah, no, yeah, we can wrap it here. Yeah, this is this is really fun. Great, thanks so much, Nick. Um, I'll definitely be keeping an eye on your work, um, and you know, hope to talk again in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I I owe you an article, so yeah, I, well, I'll see you oh, I'm looking forward then. to that. <laughs> all right, all right. I hope the audience enjoyed. Hope you learned something. Uh, we'll leave it at that for now. Until next time. 